0: Hey, welcome back to the off-duty, on-duty podcast, episode number, and we're up to 72. Insane. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network, the off-duty, on-duty podcast. We take topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and cops today for the first time ever. I've got two guests, huh? Wayne Dobbs and Daryl Bulky, So, uh, this could be a sign of, uh, the end times. I'm not sure, but it should be an interesting conversation. And I'm titling this episode, all the hits as in hardwired tactical shooting. We're going to talk about their two second standards and, uh, some of the hubbub going around about it right now. Today's episode is brought to you by Excess Sites, title sponsor of the podcast, excesssites.com. Check them out. I like the F-8s personally. And any of their lever gun sights are awesome. Uh, that's the two that I've been favoring lately. CCW safe. Get 10% off your membership. Enter code off-duty tenant checkout. The most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team, EDC Belt Company at EDCBeltCo.com. A reminder... Uh, to sign up weekly for the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. There is a link in the show notes. You got to sign up weekly. Last week, they gave away one of my other favorite pieces of kit, uh, the MCF Spark Flashlight. And uh, next week, they're giving out some dummy ammo. Also, Guardian Conference Early Bird Special is uh, still on the table. And uh, one of my guests here, Mr. Wayne Dobbs, uh, will be... Uh, teaching at the conference this year, we were fortunate enough that, uh, he's got the time he's going to come out and, uh, put on a couple blocks there for us. So should be a good time. Come see the belt company. We'll be there. Uh, we're, we're going to be there again, and we're going to have some kind of special belt that, uh, will only be available at the conference. So let's, uh, let's bring in our guest Wayne and DB. Welcome to the show, Wayne and Daryl. Uh, I, I pitched in the pre-show that this could end to be a, uh, a sign of the end times having you both on at once.
1: <laughs> There's that.
0: So, uh, <laughs> and, and it's nice because, you know, I've had you both on multiple times and, and this is the, the inaugural episode number 72 of, uh, actually having for the first time having multiple guests, uh, on zoom. So Usually I got one here with me and one remote, so uh, <laughs> it's a little learning curve for me. But uh, anywho, you guys are the the founder of Hardwired Tactical Shooting, and I don't know that we've really touched on that a whole lot in the past. That that's kind of the the flagship banner that you both train, do classes under, right? I- yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That's what we do. So. <laughs> that's us. And you kind of, the hits, guys, I like (laughs) it. Uh, So, so historically and from training with both of you guys um, in the past, you guys kind of have two really core things that you do. And the number one is the safety and the safety briefing, right? Like, yeah, we spend a solid
1: hour on that at the beginning of class. That's, you know, a little bit different than how most people in the industry Treat safety. So that's sort of been our core thing, and you know that's something that's that's just a little bit different than than sort of what everybody else does, on how much emphasis we place on that, and always kind of working around that. That there's sort of no exceptions to these rules.
0: Now, so, are those are those rooted uh, in the the old gun sight four rules?
1: They are the gun sight four safety rules. And basically, it's it's real easy to go through and uh, read them at mock. You know, see, have a contest to see how fast you can read those or recite them and then hit ready break. And then we all go train. Um, what we do is we spend an expensive amount of time in the classroom, truly giving context and examples and depth to every one of those rules and treat it as a lifestyle of responsibility rather than four things on a piece of paper.
0: Okay. Wayne, where did that come from? Was that, was that the two of you putting your heads together or kind of,
2: you what? know, uh, to a certain degree it was, but there was also, uh, I, I think what the, the biggest origin of it was is we both have a, a significant body of experience uh, bad things happening when people don't adhere to those those standards and those rules. Also, it was uh, it was greatly assisted uh, by our discussion uh, of the uh, rule three justifications because when Cooper promulgated these rules back in uh, seventy two to seventy five somewhere along in there, he put them out there and we, we basically accepted them as, as certainly important and, and they are the standards, but there was one thing that he put in there that there really wasn't a basis for. And that was rule three, keep your finger off the trigger till your sights are on the target. And when, uh, in 85, uh, Roger Anoka, a PhD physiologist, at the university of Colorado, uh, published his very, uh, groundbreaking earth-shaking mind-blowing work on uh, involuntary discharges and involuntary muscle contractions that gave us what we needed to do to shore up and justify rule three so we took all this experience uh virtually all of it bad and (laughs) and and put it together and built a safety brief uh, that's extensive and is full of context, is full of actual experiences. For instance, I've nearly been killed by a, a rule three violation uh, during an operational event, a search warrant execution, where an officer lost his balance, fired a shot that went past my throat and hit that officer's partner critically with me. Um, I uh, took a, was with a uh, a team that took a group of, uh, so-called Iraqi special police commandos operational in, in 2005 and uh, witnessed 33 negligent discharges in a 10 day period. So, you know, I have, I have a, a good body of experience with rule three problems. And so we took all of those things, all of that experience and, and plugged it into an extensive safety brief.
0: Okay, so that's, that's
2: how that built.
0: Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I went to, uh, Brother Daryl there's, uh, shotgun course, his first, get, first responder shotgun course here. And that was the first time I had caught the entire safety briefing. Um, uh, I watched it when you guys, when you did the, uh, uh, shoot like a girl, like instructor development deal. But, right. um, the only person I've ever seen really do that and kind of lay it into context, uh, with, and I'm going to plug FTA cause I love FTA and Daryl's wearing the t-shirt. Um, uh, but, um, uh, you know, Larry Vickers put, did the, the four safety rules safety briefing and put them in a really quick contextual format. But, uh, when I watched Daryl do that briefing, it was really, um, it added a lot more context and it was a, a little more engaging more than just the the standard safety brief so
1: and you know Wayne is exceptional you we have it broken down it's kind of funny so if anybody knows Wayne and I we came from two extremely different worlds as far as where we did policing, how we did policing, and the details we worked.
0: And no in and out uh, burger in Texas. So yeah, uh,
1: yeah and he had one we, we still fight about what a burger in and out. <laughs> so it's, it's worth going to the class just to just to hear that. But the um, you know I got schooled on those safety rules from the guys at D platoon. And you know everybody says, oh well the SWAT guys are exempt from that. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, that's where I got to see the level of seriousness of every one of those rules taken above and beyond in training, and then you know, Wayne and I are both uh, deeply uh, entrenched in mentorship with Pat Rogers. Another uh, sort of out of that gunsight world, Pat was very serious about. It. I mean, so we both the two things we really brought that can't that brought us together were application of those safety rules and how they apply in training to get street results. And the other thing uh, was Wayne inter- Wayne getting a hold of me uh, reference a white paper he was doing on the two-second standards, and that's the other signature thing we do, and I'll let Wayne sort of explain that and then butt in as needed.
0: Okay. Well, before we toddle too far into that rabbit hole, uh, there was <laughs> – I, I had, I saw, you know, or some recent things on the interwebs going around about two second standards and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't want to step on anybody's, uh, you know, dangling participle, but at the same time, I, I was also kind of aware that this two second standard thing was not, uh, as new as maybe it had been proposed. So let's, uh, that that was a little context I needed to add, to kind of why both of you are on at the same time. So, so, uh, you know, barring any further thought was, um, so the two second standard, um, why did it, why did it originate as two seconds? That's, that's my big question.
2: Well, and, and this goes back, Brian, I, I, I started working on this 15 or 16 years ago. And and it kind of coincided with the, uh, the availability and the, the growing volume of the availability of actual shootings on video, body worn cameras, uh, car cams, to a lesser extent, uh, security, fixed security footage for cameras inside uh, businesses, et cetera. Right. And, you know, after a while, and we've all watched them, and after a while, you watch them and you see what's going on in these encounters. And I I like to use sports and analogies when I'm teaching about this because everything that we're doing, when you get right down to it, this pistol fight or rifle fight or shotgun fight, whatever it might be, is really like contact sports, Uh, football, basketball, soccer, rugby, whatever. And you have a, in those sports, you have a beginning of the action. Uh, in football, you know, you have a snap of the ball and two lions crash into each other and the backs start maneuvering on each other to, to try to make a play. And if you will look at, at the sports things, once that action starts, within a couple of seconds, one side or the other has generally gained some kind of dominance or some kind of advantage. So, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And, you know, watch football and baseball and stuff like that all my life and then I got to looking at these videos over and over again, and I thought, that gum—it's the same thing. There is an encounter, and there is a space. It's not dead space, but there is a space of of maneuver uh, in which people try to gain an advantage. Uh, bad guys try to gain an advantage on the good guys. Good guys try to gain an advantage on the bad guys, so forth. But it, I was sitting there looking at it, and it kept on being about the same amount of time as it was in the sports analogies—just a couple of seconds. And it doesn't mean that you win or lose in a couple of seconds, but it does mean that within a couple of seconds, there is definitely someone that is is achieving dominance. So I I started paying attention and experimenting with what can you do in two seconds? And the answer was that it varies. It depends on what your level of uh, training is, what your level of alertness is and awareness, Uh, what situation or mode or location are your tools in and if we're talking about firearms classically we're talking about handguns where is the handgun when all this starts if it's in a holster uh, there's not a whole lot that can be achieved in two seconds by typical carriers maybe one shot maybe two although Daryl and I both had to pick our jaws up off the ground uh, years ago when <laughs> Tom Gibbons came and attended first responder and was carrying a, a Glock 35 in an inside the waistband holster and 40 caliber, not a nine millimeter. Uh-huh. And when we were run, when we were presenting this block and we ran Tom through it, he, uh, he achieved six hits in two seconds from a concealed carry holster on a, on a V8 bull. And we were like, I remember Daryl and I just looking at each other mouths agape and I, I, I told Thomas, can you do that again? And he did. Um, and it was legitimate concealment. You know, it wasn't one of these deals of where you're sitting there staged with your hand holding the garment or anything like that. It was, it was a good solid cold cold run. So we started and I started looking at this of, okay, we got the holster a uh, bad place for the gun to be. If you have to uh, put a gun into uh, action, then I started playing with different ready positions, uh, whether it be uh, a close quarter ready, some kind of extended ready, like a, a classic uh, Metro draw low ready or a isosceles low ready, which uh, I remember ILF, he called it uh, the universal cover mode for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, high ready uh, gun at the side, etc. And obviously it became clear that if you had the gun in hand, and especially if you were at closer quarters, you could achieve a lot more results and conduct a lot more work inside of that two-second time frame than you could if the gun was in the holster. And that, you know, that was empirically obvious to all of us. We'd, we'd all seen and known that starting in a holster is a bad thing. I remember Pat Rogers teaching us that he had more than half a dozen pistol fights while he was at NYPD and he said his first one was with the started with the gun and the holster. And he said, and I made sure that I, I actually, he's looking up at us with that little Irish bro and said, and I made sure that I never had to stop with one in the holster again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I classic. I yeah. had, uh, when I got into competition shooting on the East coast, we were talking a lot of the stage design in some of these, uh, like IDPA and defensive pistol competitions I was shooting were all based around like shootings that had happened in the law enforcement realm. Right. That because the match director, Frank Glover, he was a, he was an old cop. Right. And, uh, he mentioned one time he said, look, he goes, these are stages. Right. But the difference in this and the cops out there is, he goes, the cops don't worry about the holster. They think they need to use the gun. It's probably already in their hand. Mm-hmm. And I, and it, that was the first time it registered for me that, okay, there's, there's another, uh, another layer out here. Um, so that was you the know, first exposure back, I'd been to go ahead. Darryl.
1: This is sort of, this is how Wayne and I really became close friends is, Wayne got a hold of me, and I, I think it's actually farther back than 15 or 16 years ago. I think it's early 2000s. And said, You know, hey, I'm working on this thing, and I know you've got a whole bank of, you know, shootings that you've investigated or been present at. And all. are you seeing the same thing? And I said, You know, not only am I seeing the same thing that all of these fights are usually somebody's winning, somebody's losing in two seconds, or they'll reset the line. Or reset the fight. Somebody's moved to a better cover. Somebody's moved to a different position and you sort of get a reset on that two seconds and Mm. they work in these blocks. And that was consistent of everything we were seeing on these officer involved shootings. And then, you know, when Wynn kind of presented this thing with the two second things, I said, you know, the weirdest thing is we've based all of our success where we saw that our officers started just dominating. And I mean, dominating gunfights or shootings once we sort of converted it started with my SWAT guys and then went to everybody at the department where we started using the old LAPD qual course and I said hey Wayne we're the qual course we use the longest amount of time you have to fire a shot on that LAPD qual is two seconds around I mean so at 25 yards it's two rounds and four seconds Mm-hmm. That's the longest time. All the other ones are broken down. Now you might have like a ten yards, three point five seconds to shoot a failure drill, right? But in the but you're, you're going to deliver the beginning of that inside of two seconds on the first shot. you know so it's everything is sort of paced, and then the the sort of meat and potatoes. Of what we were seeing is my guys could deliver a failure drill. The three-yard time is two rounds to the body, one to the head, and two seconds of three yards. Well, what do you think they used most of the time in the field? They were hammering those failure drills. They were either going straight to the head or two-body, one-head. I mean, they were going right to that inside of that five- to three-yard range right, and just crushing gunfights. And so I said, you know, not only – Are we seeing this in a practical application? The qual course we stole from D Platoon and Metro out there is consistent with all of these times. And I don't think, you know, Larry Mudgett and Helms came up with this kind of stuff based on nothing. You know, those guys had so much practical experience. To look at where they came up with these times, and they're very, very, when well, we've gone down and assessed them, and a lot of people try to beat these times, what we're looking at is a lot of these things are working within a assessment speed mm-hmm. of that you build a clock based sort of on working inside of this two-second realm that accounts for level of assessment. That most people are going to be running somewhere in that three-tenths to five-tenths of getting good level assessment. And we find when guys shoot within that sort of realm is where you don't get these train wrecks, cyclic, just smacking a trigger. You're getting very controlled applications of force that are accountable because the assessment's being done at every shot, which is what we religiously preach. Right. And so all of this sort of fell together. And that's how Wayne and I sort of became friends as we were constantly revealing this, talking about it, testing it, applying it. Then when I moved to Texas, we had some stuff happen. We were going to go to work for somebody else who's fairly famous. Um, he ended up getting uh, tragically killed. It was Chris Kyle. Uh, wanted to hire us to start doing LE stuff. Didn't go bad, so we started our own company. And this was really the basis of it. Is Wayne and I spent a solid six months of constant testing of this. I mean, shooting from flashlight techniques, shooting on the move, shooting from concealment, shooting ready positions, uh, distance. You know, Wayne has delivered a two-second standard at hundred yards which I was there for when the robot shot it and, you know, <laughs> he planted one on a 12 by 12 plate at 1.5 seconds at a hundred Yeah, you know, which is basically a center chest hit from the ready at a hundred and 1.5. Um, I can't see the target, but I can hear the hit, which is good. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, uh, yeah, I'm like, why am I bringing the timer to a hundred? I want around the two second standard. Um, <laughs> probably one of the best ones we did is him and I did it from a low ready uh, 25 yards both of us hit we went to babes and got chicken fried steak and i always tell people it's not because wayne can't do that it's that i'll never be able to do that again well so, well <laughs> you also know.
2: We're, we're we're talking about two second standards in these hits it's important to understand what the uh, accuracy standard is and the accuracy standard is on the black of a v8 bull which is 5.5 inches across and a lot of people say well you know I, i'll why don't you use the eight inch circle and and the eight inch circle corresponds to the eight ring on a B8 mm-hmm. and that's fine, but it's important and people don't understand it, especially if they slept through geometry uh, in high school, but a B8 bull black 5.5 inches is exactly half the area of that eight ring. Right. So you, you are, you are holding yourself to a significantly higher standard and, and that's. That size of that, that target, that five and a half inches, uh, beautifully corresponds uh, to the anatomical uh, targets of the, the vascular area of the heart, aortic arch, or the brain. So you're, you're, you're testing uh, what can we achieve accuracy-wise and speed-wise and assessment-wise inside of two seconds. Yes, people can go really fast, and we've had that happen, and people will, I mean, just really blow it up. And, and then we've come to the conclusion and come to the, the point on that where when we see that, it's like, yeah, that was, very, that was very impressive. But there's a couple of things here. A, you can't stop what you're doing. You're shooting too fast to stop when it's time to stop. Also, you're presenting a shooting to uh, investigating and prosecuting authorities that looks like, uh, you perhaps had too good a time and that's, <laughs> now that's a that's thing now, especially these days. It, it is a big thing now. So it used to not be, but it is. now.
0: So I've, I've probably shot the bulk of, uh, the law enforcement quals almost from coast to coast now. And the first time I had ever shot the LAPD course was at, uh, uh revolver roundup. And, shooting it with a revolver, no less. Right. And I got to say that was probably the most practically applicable and realistic time standard qualification Mm -hmm. I've ever seen out of any agency. I've seen some that were harder for, you know, uh, reasons of, of trying to eliminate certain people. You know, there were elimination type courses that were, that were maybe a little harder, but but I'd never seen one that was laid out that uh, methodically, so to speak. Yeah, where everything was and that's, achievable. That's a Larry Mudgett
2: production. There is what that is. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, nothing was superhuman time standard or performance standard, but you had to be on your game the entire time. And uh, right. and I can balance that with, hey, let's shoot the Oklahoma cleat Qual at a reduced time standard. Well, yeah. you're bordering on non, you know beating a trigger faster than you can see sites at certain points. So, exactly. so yeah, I was pretty that, impressed uh, with it. That
2: LAPD target that we use that BT five. Yeah. Love that. Just the base model. Uh, that target has been around forever. And when you look at it, you, you know, the first time you see it, you're like, wow, that looks old. And it is. But if you look at it, whoever did the work on it actually apparently put some thought and some knowledge into it because the tin ring, it's four inches wide, six inches tall, which is exactly the same area that the B eight bull black area covers, 24 square inches. And it's also properly located. Most uh, if you look at a lot of targets, especially the old B twenty seven, yeah, that, that center zone is terribly located. It's it centers up just above the navel mm-hmm. on a on a typical torso, plus it's too big. So there's there, there's not a lot of sex appeal or speed appeal or anything to a lot of this. It is just simply teaching people solid fundamental approaches. That if they go out there and do the work and learn learn these fundamental approaches, then they have essentially the skills they need. And I'm talking about police officers here a lot because they're not going to do any more than you than you force them to. So if you can get them fairly competent in this in this kind of training on these kind of targets and these kind of time frames they'll be okay. And Daryl proved that with his his guys that, uh, you know, you you put them on a rote course with some time standards and some performance standards, and uh, they come through for you.
1: Sort of one of the big things we found, you know, when I was looking at these shootings is that most people, um, I I think I found in every case except for one, uh, time slowed down to a crawl with everybody. I mean, it was consistent across the board, is that the brain took care of a lot of the problem-solving, processing, and time. And what we found by going to these kind of courses where we have these very rigid set time standards and we don't let them shoot too fast, we don't let them shoot too slow, is what we're trying to build is we're trying to build an internal clock with them. And we do that with the call courses that we build a clock for each range as to what kind of precision work can they do and by the same token the whole point of the two-second standards when we put guys through this um in our courses a you can't miss the black if you throw one out of the black you dq you're done um again it's it's half the size of the eight inch circle figuring that you're going to probably shoot you know we're on a one-dimensional paper target that's not shooting back you're under optimal conditions So we're expecting an optimal hit in an optimal area, figuring that they may double when things are going bad in the field. So that's why we use the black is it's an optimal targeting size in an optimal condition range. If you put one out of the black, you DQ, you're done, you lose. And so what we're trying to do is build a hundred percent accountability and consistency every time. What we find wins gunfights is whoever can park one in that in that this size area, in the chest or the head first, wins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it gets critical that we get people to understand you have gotta park rounds in that sort of size target and be able to do that. Now let's look at how how realistic can you do it. So So we're doing this with people. We'll let them kind of run this thing to see what their max times are. And then it's like, well, I got like seven rounds, but I leaked one. And they'll do it again. And I got like seven, but I was over time. And then, and we'll go, okay, dial that back to four. Yeah. Let's dial that back to, you know, and and Wayne always used, we're going to dial that back down to 70 miles an hour on the George Bush tollway. You know, (laughs) you're, you're not at maximum performance, but if, but it, it, if a carpet falls out of the back of the work truck in front of you, you can avoid it. You know, yeah, we know you can do 140, but at 70, you can actually avoid some crises going on. And so we'll dial people and go, OK, so your number here is four. You know, it's four rounds. And then all of a sudden they can consistently, from a low ready, come up, deliver four, cent, four solid, you know, in the black hits every single time, a four time, four rounds in under uh, two seconds. We have some students. If we can get them to hit one round in the black in two seconds from the ready, it's a touchdown. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute touchdown. We we're trying to get the students to work at the level they are at personally. Rather than them trying to attain somebody else's standard, we're trying to get them to what their level of accountability is for themselves with their skills, ability, carry system, how they're working, whatever condition they're in. To build a realistic standard for them, not trying to beat some dude on YouTube. And that's the goal. And, you know, we, we try to demonstrate what too fast looks like. I believe I still hold the record on the two-second standards, which was a demo to show what too fast looked like. I shot 11 rounds in two seconds with a, limb, a P30 with a limb in it, doing a demo in front of a SWAT team. So it was heavily witnessed. This wasn't Daryl out by himself with a, a number two pencil. Um <laughs> And, you know, it's just it, by sheer luck, all 11 rounds ended up in the black. And, you know, it was just one of those funny things. My normal time from a ready with just about anything. Normally for me, like five or six is my number. Wayne is usually about seven or eight is his number, you know, depending on where we're at. You know, practice wise, uh, the ammo crisis brings me down to about five. You know, when I'm practicing a lot, it's six, you know. Right. And we know what our times and numbers and where we're at. So I kind of know, for example, we'll do this. Say I'll, I'll shoot this from a neck index with a flashlight. I know what I can do under that condition. We know what numbers we can produce from three yards, five yards, seven yards. I mean, we get a very realistic thing of where we're at and what we can do individually rather than trying to attain somebody else's standard. And that's what we think is missing a lot in the training industry is what can your, let's get your students to be able to be accountable to understand the realities of where they're at instead of trying to beat some phantasmical time that is completely Mm -hmm. non-assessed shooting. It's completely unrealistic for the real world. It's not court, uh, you know, it's not courtable. You know, it doesn't comport well inside of the legal system or the or the uh, social system of, of uh, this, the the expectations of the citizen rate. There is a lot of factors, and we try to work inside of what those realistic factors are.
0: Yeah, and you know, you were talking earlier about start positions and not being staged and all of this stuff, which is one of the reasons I've come back around to the appreciation for. The, the snubby again is having the ability to not offend the conscience of the public and still have a full firing grip on a gun, mm-hmm. right?
1: That's so, why we teach that as covered blow ready. Exactly. That's how we teach it. I mean, that's, that's a, a kind of a hits presentation of that is, and where do you think that comes from? Well, you get out on the two second standards with a J frame or an LCR or something in your right. pocket. You're going, Man, I did do some pretty good work on this. Realistically, within the time frames and the accuracy standards, with a snub, I really know what I can do, and inside of those ranges,
2: right? You know, something that that I think it's important to uh, point out on this. This wasn't. I, I I use an acronym, and I use it an awful lot, especially lately when I watch watch the internet or you know. Political people talking, and that is uh, Puma, P-O-O-M-A, which stands for "pulled out of my ass," uh, <laughs> which you know basically lies or confabulations. When I when I put this together and started writing this up and and hypothesizing it and putting it on paper, I didn't use it as Puma. I, I used it basically by looking at what we were seeing. And what we could tell by looking at video and talking to people. And then I took all this and I sent it uh, to a collection of people whose names you would instantly recognize across this country that are considered the top end defensive firearms instructors on this planet. I'm not talking about competitive firearms instructors. But I'm talking about, I'll just tell you, two of them were Larry Vickers and Ken Hackathorn. Another one was uh, Paul Howe. I sent them this, and I said, I want you to look this over, and I want you to tell me if I'm completely insane here or if this makes any sense. And every one of the people I ask, and I think they're, what was it, Darrell, about eight or ten? Yeah. Something like
1: that. And then, you know, some of us us would go past that along to other yeah. people along uh, you know as well and go hey a buddy of mine's working on this this is what because i did that also as i said here are you seeing this also because this is 110 for me and i and i reached out to guys in la and stuff so
2: yeah so we it was it was uh i guess you would call it an informal peer review of the concept and, and the information and I got complete agreement. I didn't have a single person say, you know, Wayne, you're wrong, or, or it should be one second or one and a half seconds or anything else. I got complete agreement across the board, which I think is is rather difficult to achieve on anything uh, at any time. Uh, another thing is, and we talked about it, we've alluded to it, is shot pacing is super important. You, you have to be able to a achieve centered hits. And if you do, if you do, then then things work really well. You also can't shoot too quickly. And that's the reasons for that is, is it'll it'll cause missing. It also causes you to shoot people that shouldn't be shot. It also causes you to shoot at people that are no longer there. As in they have changed locations or fallen down or run away, whatever. So we, we work on a shot pace and and the shot pace that we kind of throw out at people would cause most USPSA heads to explode because the shot pace that we continually hover at is around 0.35 to 0.50. That that is a standard close quarter shot pace. And yes, you can shoot faster. You can shoot twice that fast or three times that fast, some people. But again, it's like the real world is when you shoot somebody, uh, if you hit them, they're not going to be in the same place they were when you shot them that first time. They are going to change their location and their attitude somehow. So if you're, if you're locked into saying, well, I'm going to shoot at this pace, no matter what the target attitude or, or location or size or, or orientation is to me, then you're going to fire misses. Uh, you're going to fire unjustified shots. So that, we're, we're careful. It is a very disciplined controlled response that we're teaching with this concept.
0: That is the one huge benefit I saw in, uh, PPC competition. You're shooting an unrealistic gun on a terrible target, but timing, it was critical, absolutely critical. Um, and that's what set my internal clock years ago for, it, it didn't matter really what the time was. I had the, after doing that for so long, you get the, uh, the understanding of what two seconds really is, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, That was probably the largest takeaway I took from, uh, you know, all those years of um, launching good defensive 148 wide cutters into B8s and dirt, (laughs) which,
1: you know, part of this too is, you know, these are, this is a set of drills we do that is sort of the um, culmination of sort of our whole program, if that makes sense. Is And part of that is, you know, one of the things um, I teach is basically how we go through a process of the, uh, determining you are even going to press a trigger. And that's that, you know, see a threat, evaluate a threat, eliminate a threat, the C process. And everybody wants to focus on the entire on 1% of the evaluation, I'm sorry, elimination phase of that, where we really need to spend a lot of time in the evaluation phase. And, you know, one of the things we're very hard on our students about is that every time you press a trigger, you have to go through, see, evaluate, and eliminate that target. Every single time you press the trigger, that's the expectation. Legally, you have to do. You don't get to fire three because, well, that's how I always train is shooting three. I mean, that, it doesn't work that way. So we try to set times in and we try to set a timer that is consistent with people's ability to go through that process so that you can articulate it later when you're trying to explain what you did. And we have a lot of people out there who are basing shooting drills, programs, whatever it is they're doing, on a couple places where that's not real important. It's either out of some of the military operations stuff that don't have to spend a lot of time in the evaluation phase. And sort of see a threat, eliminate a threat, and their, their options for eliminating the threat are quite minimal, and they don't have to spend a ton of time in the evaluation phase. By the same token, out of the sport shooting community, none of that applies. I mean, it's pretty much see a target that you already know where it is, so there, you can kind of throw that whole thing out. You've already done – I mean, the best guys out there, it comes down to uh, you know match planning. Um there's no evaluation whatsoever. And so it really becomes an elimination exercise at speed. So when we get into defensive shooting inside of the United States under constitutional laws and standards being applied to every time you press a trigger, you know, when I tell people, I go, Do you, know, you know, every time you press a trigger, You are committing an assault with a firearm or an attempted murder or murder. So basically, it's actually two. You're either committing an attempted murder or a murder, which are the two highest level felonies out there are those two things. And you're committing those crimes every time you press a trigger. You better be able to articulate a subsection in in your appeal code as to why you committed those crimes. And everybody glazes over at me like I'm talking, like I got a horn coming out of my head, except for people who have been through this and realize when you're sitting in one of those interviews on the wrong side of the table, the the investigators are filling out a report with your name as the suspect. And it's going to a a, a legal body with either a homicide or an attempt homicide crime code associated with it.
0: Hoping. That all so of they, that falls under a, a subsection.
1: Sec- there's a subsection that makes it a justifiable homicide or a justified uh, attempt homicide. Boy, that that there's a lot riding on this, and that's why we're working. We're trying to work inside of time frames that we know work. It's peer reviewed into those time frames across the board, and with an accuracy standard that all the people we peer reviewed who are all pretty established folks all agreed as the accuracy standard and the time standard we should be using. And that's how we teach this. And, you know, like I said, this is how Wayne and I became really close friends is, is, spending a lot of time evaluating this stuff and constantly, uh, Reevaluating it, is it still applicable and not only are we finding is it still applicable it's more applicable mm-hmm. uh, as time goes on and one of the things we start emphasizing with people is you know when you start getting to the point where in two seconds you're shooting stuff six seven eight times you know where you you have that ability at that speed maybe you should be switching targets at two and taking that headshot in there and applying that failure drill, which is what most of my guys were doing, which kept us out of a lot of court cases, because if you could come in and instead of having an eight round shooting, you have a two or three round shooting. It sure looks a whole lot better, you know, to the public who doesn't have any understanding of this.
0: Yeah. Uh, we had, uh, we had a pretty, uh, I hate, I hate to say famous incident, but we had an incident at a uh, local diner about, gosh, 25 years ago that a couple of my peers and friends were involved in on on a uh, suspect that had shot an officer. And, uh, they're going into the local cop diner at midnight and he just happens to be in there three in the morning, whatever it was. And the only reason I have a whole lot of knowledge about it is, uh, (laughs) my padre worked the scene. And, uh, so, and these, these three officers, uh, two of them slide locked, a, one of them slide locked a two, two, six, one of them a G 17. And the third one didn't empty a mag. So we're talking 50 ish, 58 ish rounds fired. Um, because the, the, the suspect they shot had drawn a gun and hung it up on the table in the booth he was setting at and when they started to shoot him his motion and movement from taking impacts from the bullet is waving a gun on the table back and you know and i can remember 25 years ago people going oh my gosh they they overkilled him
1: Overkill's is a thing
0: it, well it 25 you know, it years really ago years thing,
1: ago yeah the, overkill now is really a thing because again you you the jury of your peers is second grade school teachers um you know bus drivers uh it's not a jury of your peers it's a jury of people who have absolutely no understanding of this and they're educated on television yeah it is going to be that what you're facing if it gets that far and we would much rather have these things adjudicated at The review level in the district attorney's office, which was always our goal, you know, I tell people, I go, I go, you know how many times I've had to testify in federal court defending my people? And I'm very proud of this on how many times I've had to actually sit in federal court defending my guys. You know how many it is? Zero. Now, that's not to say I haven't been involved in a whole bunch of federal lawsuits My end of it on application of force was done in deposition. That is where you want this to be done is, yes, everything was consistent with training. It is not over that you guys are going to need to go down a different path rather than the application of force path. And that's where you want to be. You want these things adjudicated because if you can establish reasonable, well ahead of the (laughs) court process you don't need to pay exorbitant amounts of money to roll the dice on expert witness in front of a jury that isn't like you.
0: Right. And that's that's, uh, something I've watched you open a lot of eyes with is when you talk about, Hey, when you pull the trigger, you're committing a murder. You're committing a murder. It's Mm -hmm. do you have the legal justification to do so at that time? Um, you know, it, strangely enough, in this, this this incident that I'm referencing, and uh, I will tell the listening audience that, you know, as a young police officer, when we would eat there, they would ask us if we wanted to sit in the Lucky booth because there were still bullet defects in it. <laughs> uh, it's since, it's, been yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> since been remodeled. Yeah, it's since been remodeled. But all three of these officers, you know, their perception was as this this suspect's moving with the gun in his hand and the guns resting on the table. And, you know, his, uh, (laughs) he was no longer living at the point, but just because of the impacts they kept, kept shooting just simply based on, Hey, there is still a threat. And then eventually the the gun falls out of his hand or gets shot out of his hand. One or the other. I, I don't remember that detail of it, but they all like immediately stopped started reloading doing, and, uh, and, uh, I can remember the, the, the frustration in my father's voice when I said, Hey, are you going to make it home by like time to take me to breakfast? And he said, no, there's brass everywhere. But, uh, <laughs> but either way, I, and I thought at that time, you know, even as a, I think I was about 12, 13 when that happened. And, uh, later I worked with every one of these guys, you know, and I, I remember thinking, well, I can understand why, okay why you would continue to shoot having perceived that there is still a threat a viable threat there but the the fallout or the the aftermath of it that nobody likes to talk about the ugly side of that was well why did they have to do that so many times and how many times did they have mm-hmm. to shoot the de- and on and on and then i realized that the general populace didn't grow up in a gun shop with a cop as a dad mm-hmm. and that's the people that are going to be reviewing this Provide if it goes to a jury trial, uh, that's, that's, that's who you're going to draw out of the jury pool is, is not the, not the seven-year-old that can name all the model numbers and differences in Smith and Wesson revolvers and, you know, and could disassemble a Colt Delta elite, uh, you know, whatever, but, uh, it, it's going to be Sally school teacher or whoever that's going to have to, you know, be presented with this as evidence. And that's a hurdle. Not many people are, are really cognizant. That's out there. That's right. And
2: you know, Brian, something that, uh, or two, two aspects on that one. Um, I think it was Tom Gibbons that I heard say it, but whoever it was, they were right. Said that when you were looking at those 12 men and women in that jury, in that box, they were, uh, he described them as saying, those are the 12 people that weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty, which <laughs> should scare you to death. Uh, and the other thing, and, and we've talked about, you know, if you fire a shot, you're either committing a murder or an attempted murder, at least as as we boil it down on the penal code of our various states. Uh, there's something else that we've thrown out there, and and uh, we we drew some heat on it, and we will continue to do so, and continue to be proud of it. And that's pointing guns at people that you haven't achieved a uh, a level of justification to shoot yet. Uh, and I, I'm. Not gonna be a hypocrite because as a young cop and for for years in police work I don't know how many muzzles I put on people with fingers on triggers uh, and there was yeah all of us have and, <laughs> and we couldn't uh, what what is important to understand is that was in a, a different time and place of, of policing uh, and training some form some people yeah some people would call it the good old days. But if you point, at least in Texas, and I suspect in all the other 49 states and territories, if you point a firearm at someone, especially a loaded firearm at someone, that you have no justification to shoot, that's an aggravated assault. And that's a 10-year hit in Texas if you get convicted of it.
0: In Oklahoma, it's pointing a firearm. uh, That There's a specific statute to it. And one of the things I'm kind of curious to see with the advent of body camera is, uh, when we're going to start seeing that challenged on the law enforcement side. Uh, you know,
1: these are becoming all, you know, the new thing is, and you know, this, it's funny, that's the subject, you know, this is the subject Wayne and I got to be dear friends out of. This is how I got to be dear friends with Chuck Haggard. Chuck Haggard and I have been on a 20 plus year crusade to try to get cops to point guns at everything, you know, and, and I'm not, and again, I'm as guilty as anybody. I pointed guns at hundreds and hundreds of people who didn't need to be shot because we were all trained that way. And then you get smarter over time or, or standards change or standards of reasonableness will change societally or through the courts. Well, now the new thing is that's all now becoming reportable uses of force. Mm-hmm. You know where you need to you need to cut now. I was always very good personally because I didn't mind doing the work. If I pointed a gun at somebody, I probably cut paper behind it, yeah. and that was just me personally on my because I like to write and I would cover myself on stuff like that. Um, but the reality is that is now becoming a, a every bit of a reportable use of force.
0: Yeah, it, and,
1: and we've still got a lot of people out here who think it's absolutely acceptable because the badge is some, well, I have a badge, so I'm an exempt, which no, no you're not, the, the, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're cut a little more slack on a yeah. lot of this, but you are not exempt. And I go, you know, if, and, and, you know, particularly at the one that gets me is I, I can almost understand a lot of guys when they get scared, they're in certain situations, it's unpredictable. I'm not going to Monday mm-hmm. morning quarterback that, but a lot of these, you know, we have a very specific rule on what, for absolutely sure, doesn't get muzzles on them, which is, you know, your team or family members, children, not teens with guns, children, children, you know, little children, and what we call obvious non-combatants. We got a lot of people putting guns on obvious non-combatants. I mean, painfully obvious. These are not. The droids you're looking for, you know. Right. Um, one right. of the ones that infuriated me years ago was they were doing it. You know, because in the name of terrorism, you can do anything. You know, New York City, you know, subway cars are pulling up and the doors are opening, and their counter-terrorist guys are sitting there all jocked up, using the lights on their um, M4s to search the interiors of the cars. You know, looking for bombs or something. You're muzzling everybody on that train because the door opened with an M4, so you can use a flashlight. I'm like, are you are you freaking kidding me? Well, how is that remote? Because I'll tell you what, you point a gun at me for no apparent reason. There is going to be some action on the other end of that. Right. You know, that's not that that's not a gimme. Of well, we're looking for bombs. I you know, I don't care. The, uh, I don't care. That's not that doesn't fall within any state's penal code as being okie dokie and at some point you know these guys are going to find out the hard way that this is going to be a no-fly zone so that's a lot of why we get you know going back to kind of how we teach this stuff we do a ton of work from that low ready to kind of show guys or show our students that you can come out of that hard low ready where you have not violated one single one of the four basic safety rules and still be incredibly efficient and not time challenged. Right. Contrary to popular belief. You know, a lot of times when you're on target, you got guns blocking vision, you got a lot going on, all of a sudden you're making bad decisions or you're making a a shoot decision before you're really ready to make a shoot decision. That you do not have enough information or you have blocked out information. Because you got a gun in front of your face,
0: yeah. The after one of our you were working graveyards conversations, and I'd talked to Wayne, and, and you know, uh, I started looking into the Oklahoma statutes, and uh, there is a very ambiguous statute exemption for police officers that you know it basically it's unlawful to point a firearm with you know even without intent, um, it gives an exemption for accidental hey, we're hunting and I muzzled a guy at, you know, turning around out of Bill's truck or whatever. Right. Uh, but it says, except for a police officer in the performance of his duties, well, we all know how courts interpret that. Well, how, how, how ambiguous is that? What is the, okay. Does that mean I can go to work and point my gun at everyone? Well, it has to meet that reasonableness standard, which is a sliding scale these days. And uh, anyway, I hate to be the, uh, to harp on that one, but, but you guys really inspired me to look into that on the, uh, the LE side. And when I found that statutory exemption for Oklahoma, I was like, man, that's as wafer thin as this piece of paper right here. That's somebody's interpretation. It's just somebody hasn't taken somebody in a position of, uh, being able to charge a, a, a police officer in the performance of his duties. Hasn't taken that, uh, torch yet. Notice I said, that, yeah, that, that's,
1: that's literally DAable, you know, a DA in one place, we'll use that as an exemption, or DA somewhere else, we'll yeah. test that paper thinness or get on the crusade of, we need to change this mm-hmm. and, and, and you, make you an know, example. One of, the, one of the kind of cornerstones of what Wayne and I do is training people to confront evil while being morally, ethically, and legally correct while they're doing it, being right on all three of those standards. And, you know, just because something's like legal might not be morally and legally or morally and ethically correct, you know, we want kind of that full standard of those are the type of people we want to be training. If you're not interested in <laughs> believing there's a lot of people out there, we don't want as students. Well, you know we, were, we really don't we're, we're not we're not above saying we just don't want certain people as students. If you're not interested in morals, ethics, legality, working this stuff as a as a doer of good, um, we're not we're not particularly interested. and we want to teach people how to do things correctly because you know everybody everybody likes to say, well, I'd rather be uh, you know tried by 12 than carried by six. How, how much How much prison time have you spent? Yeah. You know, it's easy to say that stuff. Or, you know, civil court. You no, know, well, I'll just go, you know, I'll call some guy from poor science and they'll come testify for me in court and it'll, it'll all be okay. How how, how bankrupt? I, I mean, what kind of money you got? Ba- bankroll on this. You got a half a million dollars laying around?
0: Yeah. Because most people don't. Well, we're so, coming. Brian. Com- we're coming up on the hour. Go ahead, Wayne.
2: I, uh, I knew it was, I, w- I was certain of it, but I went and while we we're listening to Daryl here, I went and pulled up the Texas aggravated assault code, uh, penal code section, which is 22.02 of the Texas penal code. And there are no exemptions in that or chapter nine, which is the exemptions chapter in the penal code for uses of force. Uh, there are none for, uh, pointing guns at people by police officers. So, Police officer pointing a gun in Texas points a firearm at somebody without a justification to shoot them. uh, They committed a felony. And given uh, in the urban DA's offices, every one of them in Texas now, the big urban DA's office, all have a leftist or progressive uh, district attorney who is anxious uh, to uh, charge the police. Dallas, that DA charged two officers uh, over over less lethal uses during the riots, uh, Austin this last week and died at 19. So they are on the hunt for the police. What do you think they'll do with you?
0: What a great place to land. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks, Daryl. All right. Reminder, check out today's sponsor title sponsor, of the podcast, excess sites, EDC belt co. CCW safe, get in on the Guardian Conference and sign up for the Concealed Carry podcast giveaway. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And as always, the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel When researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application, Eastridge training and consulting LLC, its participants, partners and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.